recording. Yeah, hey, it's Zane Horowitz and the whole crew here at the Oregon Poison Center for the October uh, 2018 Journal Club. And we're talking about uh, an old drug, which some new articles have come out on, and we'll review some other stuff on aspirin, is basically what we're talking about, salicylic acid. Um, I'm going to start off with uh, um, an article which is sort of a little bit of a history, a little bit of an essay, and maybe set up the next several articles that will come up. And the article is called An Aspirin a Day, written by uh, Philip Majeris out of uh, Washington, St. Louis. Um, he, I think he's a hematologist and basically talks a little bit about the beginnings of aspirin historically, that when Joseph Lister, who really didn't have that much to do with aspirin, but the father of modern surgery realized people were dying of wound sepsis and infections, came up with some solutions and uh, built on the work of Louis Pasteur, and this was in the mid-1800s. He basically figured out if you put phenol all over the place on the instruments and the sponges, and at one point, like, aerosolize it into the air of the surgical suite, uh, this produced a uh, decrease in wound infections. But the aerosolizing of the disinfectant was pretty toxic and made the surgeons at the time pretty ill. And he's looking for other options and he briefly used salicylic acid as a disinfectant, although it really didn't come into favor at that point. Um, in the mid-1800s, chemists in France, Germany, Italy used very plant extracts, we now know mostly willow bark, and they converted um, the uh, salicylic acid to a more pure, uh, pure form, but it still, although it was used intermittently, it was pretty harsh on people's stomach, um, wasn't very widely used or marketed. Um, fast forward about 1850s, where a French chemist uh, buffered salicylic acid, neutralized it with a sodium salt by adding acetyl chloride, and uh, this was a little bit better, but still a reasonably unstable form, um, and he dropped the project didn't really see a use for it. It was sort of dormant for another couple of decades until um, a German chemist working for a company called Bayer, uh, Carl Johann Kraut, in 1869 produced aspirin in a stable form. Um, and he, this also remained relatively quiescent for years. Sorry, he wasn't the Bayer chemist. The next one in the line, 1898. So a whole, you know, almost 60, 70 years of aspirin not going anywhere. Finally, this chemist at Bayer, Felix Hoffman, figured out a way to make it superior, and it turned out much as is the time at the period. People were experimenting on themselves. He didn't quite do that, but Hoffman's father suffered from rheumatoid arthritis, couldn't take salicylic acid uh, because it was harsh in the stomach, so he used this new aspirin derivative from reducing acetic anhydride with salicylic acid together and lo and behold, his father had less upset stomach and his rheumatoid arthritis was helped. Um, the people who ran Bayer um, with marketing in mind uh, sent samples of this new miracle drug all over the place to chemists and doctors and said, check it out, see what it does, and uh, they did. And over the next three or four years, they had published articles, about 100, 150 articles all told, saying that Aspen did this and did that, and it was wonderful. Um, it quickly emerged as a very popular drug, and in 1917 in this country, Monsanto made pretty much all of the aspirin in the United States, including all of that, which was sold under the Bayer name, Bayer Aspirin, and uh, that's where aspirin came from. 
it was present and used as an antipyretic and anti-inflammatory uh, drug for the better part of the 1900s um, until we realized it had some effect on bleeding or our ability to bleed. This all comes from a California ENT surgeon uh, named Lawrence Craven uh, who basically prescribed aspirin gum tubal form to patients who after they had tonsillectomies for pain relief, pointing not to uh, give them stronger opioids, and he realized that these patients bled badly for several days, so he stopped the practice. Um, he uh, tried to reduce it and find the right dose, but he never quite figured that out. And he concluded that if aspirin does this, by decreasing formation of thrombi, maybe it does something with people who are suffering a coronary event in their heart. And uh, he reported that, um, I don't know if he did a study, but he quotes are more than 400 men have taken it, and none of them so far have suffered a coronary thrombosis. Um, so it started to be realized that this may have some effect on coronary disease. Um, I'm not going to go into great detail how aspirin works. I think we're pretty uh, familiar with it uh, being in, uh, working on prostaglandins. And, uh, but I will mention that um, <coughs> the thought was it might prevent heart attacks. And there was a very early study with healthy physicians who, who were indeed pretty healthy. And they gave aspirin to all of them and controls. And there was less heart attacks than the people on aspirin. And they studied about 20,000 physicians, which are pretty sizable study, but the incidence of heart attacks amongst this group was pretty low, and so it was hard to know if this was statistically um, significant or not. Um, on sort of a separate tact, aspirin was also found somewhat by luck to maybe decrease the risk of cancer, specifically colon cancer, and these were mostly done by a 48,000 health professional questionnaire, which was administered. 1986, 88, 1992, 95, and found out that people had less colon cancer if they were regular aspirin users from the start of the study than case matched controls. So it may do two things. It may um, help with uh, um, decreased risk of coronary disease, and it may help with uh, decreased colon cancer. Other things have been looked at for um, Basically, uh, other cancers, breast cancer, prostate cancer, lung cancer, and it hasn't really panned out uh, for all of that. Um, on the you know downsides, aspirin you know causes some stomach irritation. We all know that um, about up to maybe two percent of people stop taking it um, because of that. People with asthma may be at higher risk, maybe up to ten percent with uh, drug-induced asthma from aspirin. That's another potential side effect. Um, and although we think that aspirin is pretty safe, when we do these large randomized controlled trials like they did in a, a Dutch study uh, not too long ago, the risk of major GI bleeding uh, confidence interval was about 1.5, which basically said about one out of every 500 patients given a regular standard baby aspirin a day will have a bleed, which isn't a huge number, and there certainly weren't any fatal bleeds, but it's, it's there. So he concludes with his own take on it, and he says, I believe all adults should take an aspirin a day. The benefits uh, in the relatively young and healthy are very uh, small, but uh, the incidence of cancer and heart disease is also small. But as we get older, uh, the risk is higher for these events. And um, because 
events are rare, and a randomized clinical trial to figure out if it would do anything would require huge numbers of people. It doesn't mean that we can't, just because we can't prove it doesn't mean it doesn't exist and because it's cheap and it's minimally toxic. He says, take your aspirin every day. So the big question is thrown down, and we will answer that in a moment. Uh, does aspirin in healthy people, now we all know aspirin in people who already had an MI, already had a stroke, already have high risk for coronary disease, probably is beneficial. That's called secondary prevention. The question is, does aspirin do anything for primary prevention? I know I gave these articles out a few weeks ago because they were published early. They actually appear in today's Thursday, October 18th, in the Journal of Medicine. So talk about a couple of articles done by the same group called the Esprit Investigatory Group, lead author J.J. McNeil. We're first going to talk about that big question, does aspirin um, lead to an increase or decrease in cardiovascular events or bleeding events? And so to talk about that article, we have Lauren. Thank you. Um, my name is Lauren. I'm one of the junior fellows, and I'll be going over this first article that um, Dr. Horowitz introduced here. The name of the article is Effect on Aspirin of Aspirin on Cardiovascular Events and Bleeding in the Healthy Elderly. And this is a report from a only a subset of the total ASPRI investigator data. And it, like we were just saying, it was published September 2018 uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, we already got some excellent background that we already use aspirin in secondary prevention, but the question is, um, can aspirin be beneficial as primary prevention? Um, they review a couple articles in their background and reference some systematic reviews that in adults of all ages that um, the uh, conclusion is unclear whether that can be beneficial, but there's, if we take the elderly, perhaps the elderly because they have a higher risk of comorbid conditions and um, a higher risk of poor medical outcomes just given their age that perhaps it would be helpful. The ASPRI trial, what ASPRI stands for is um, ASA or aspirin and reducing the uh, reducing events in the elderly is what that uh, stands for. So while this data was done to look overall um, if this would improve morbidity in the elderly, they, were a, they had a very, very large data subset that they were able to take apart just to look for cardiovascular endpoints. So this trial was quite impressive. I thought they did a really good job in setting it up. It was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial where the participants received 100 milligrams of aspirin enteric-coated or placebo. It was an intention-to-treat trial. The population of this trial was uh, people in Australia and in the United States, but 80% of the participants were in Australia. Um, um, most, the majority were Caucasian, um, and the age group was anyone over 70 years of age if you're Caucasian. And then to help increase um, minority populations, um, patients who are either of black or Hispanic background who are 65 years of older were included in the U.S. to try and have um, a little bit more variable of a population. There are a number of exclusion criteria. So in order to be enrolled in the study, you had to have no prior coronary artery disease, no history of CHF, no MI, no cabbage. Um, you could not have a fib. You could not be on any anticoagulation. You couldn't have dementia, anemia, or any bleeding risk. Um, 
or any physical disability, you had to be able to complete all your ADLs. So we're talking about a subsegment of like very healthy people. Um, they were allowed to have things like uh, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and diabetes. A number of other exclusion criteria include that they had to have well-controlled high blood pressure, so they couldn't have a blood pressure over uh, systolic of 180 or diastolic of 105 in their uh, yearly visits with their physician, and they couldn't have any sort of a terminal condition that gave them a five-year life expectancy or less. So a very, very particular population. Um, people were then randomized into two age groups. So uh, the group of people enrolled who were age 65 to 79 were randomized, and then anyone over the age of 80 was also randomized to try and keep things equal in those two groups. And they were followed at their annual physician visits. What I thought was also a really nice touch in this study is that they actually, prior to enrolling um, someone officially, is they did a trial run for four weeks and made sure that they were compliant. They had a pill compliance of at least 80% or higher. So if you weren't, um, I thought that was a really nice touch. Like you never know who's gonna be um, uh, adhering to the study protocol, but they kind of gave everyone a test run to see if they would be compliant. And um, they had endpoint definitions that included, so their, the endpoint for the ASPRI trial was a more general um, idea of morbidity in the elderly and uh, years without disability. And the focus of this paper was taking out the secondary endpoints of that study. So one of them here was any sort of cardiovascular disease, this would be fatal or non-fatal MI, fatal or non-fatal stroke, or any heart failure. And then another endpoint was major hemorrhage. So this was either intracranial or extracranial that required a transfusion, hospitalization, if it prolonged their hospital stay, or if it required surgery or resulted in death. So they ended up screening 83,000 people um, and ended up enrolling 19,000 people, which is quite impressive. I thought that was awesome. Um, they all took a lot of data on these patients. They put them into subgroups based on sex, age, country of origin, race, whether they're a smoker, and then all stages of smoking, so former smoker, never smoker, or current smoker, their BMI, um, and when whether at baseline they had diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, or any chronic kidney disease. Um, the groups were very equally laid out. Theory, they had a very similar population. I won't go into the details there because they, they did a very good job randomizing this group, so they had equal portions in both groups. The aspirin subset of patients had 9,525 patients, and the placebo group had 9,589. And then they followed them for 4.7 years on average. At, by that time, um, it only 62% in the aspirin trial were still taking their aspirin or compliant and adherent, and 64% in the placebo group, so um, only about two-thirds in both groups were still adherent to the trial. However, um, they because of it, it was an intention to treat setup, they included anyone even if they fell out of the trial to try and keep things balanced. Um, so on to the results. What they found for cardiovascular disease is that there was no major difference. Um, in the aspirin group, there were 10.7 events per 1,000 person years compared to the placebo group of 11.3 events per 1,000 person years with a confidence interval that does cross one. So they said this was not a significant finding. Also, an important point for them is that the observed rate of this cardiovascular disease and endpoints that they were looking for occurred uh, in um, at a rate of 50% of what they expected. So the expected 
um, cardiovascular disease for the segment of the population based on prior epidemiological studies would have been 22.4 events, so it was in half. Um, for major adverse cardiac events, uh, they the aspirin had a risk of 7.8 events per 1,000 person years. Placebo was 8.8, again, very similar in the confidence interval crosses one. So they said no evidence that this is um, helpful for preventing major cardiac events. However, in their last endpoint was hemorrhagic events. There was a significant increase in hemorrhagic events in the aspirin group. So they found that 8.6 per 1,000 uh, people years um, had a hemorrhagic event as opposed to 6.2 events per person per 1,000 or a, per 1,000 person years, pardon me, um, with a hazard ratio of 1.38, and the confidence interval does not cross one, it's 1.18 to 1.62, and they reported a p-value uh, that was significant. Um, there was a very low risk of any fatal hemorrhage, and the majority of cases could be attributed to upper GI bleeds in the majority of the case. So um, overall, I think very well done. Um, they, you could make some arguments, was this too short of a follow-up? You know, a lot of times we think aspirin is beneficial when taken for a long period of time. Um, but again, we have people who are quite elderly as well, so it doesn't really make sense to follow them for 30 years when you're 70 years old as you might not complete the trial. Um, does this population apply to us? That's also a question. The majority are Australian. They probably have some different uh, I mean, it's hard, it's hard to say, just being in different countries, how much you can apply that to your own population. But given the substantial amount of people involved, I thought they did a good, really good job. Yeah, no, it was a pretty uh, good study. It, obviously, it could have gone longer than five years, 4.7 years in general. But you started out with a very healthy population of 70-year-olds because their risk of all these things was much less than all the other previously reported incidents. And uh, they essentially, at least in this study, disproved the notion that if you're healthy, you should be on aspirin because it doesn't really change your outcome. Looking at cardiovascular disease, and perhaps doesn't really change your outcome about hemorrhagic events, although there was a slight increased incidence of intracranial bleeding that was a little bit higher on aspirin than placebo. So to sort of rebut the thesis of the first article, because not everybody perhaps should be on aspirin today, but clearly people who have an MI, this is part and parcel of package they should go home with and stay with and be compliant with. But maybe that's not the whole study. There's three parts of the spree study all published uh, this morning. Uh, I'm not going to cover all of them, but the one... Just before sure. you move on to yeah, the next sure. study, um, it's not apparent from just reading mm -hmm. this report about the kind of the power analysis and their expected uh, differences, or, or did I dismiss that? It may, it's probably in the supplemental stuff, but I guess the, the point about the rate of events being half of what they expected, mm -hmm. I would anticipate would affect that power analysis and what their expected differences was, mm -hmm. but they don't comment on that, do they? I didn't see that. No. In other words, if they were expecting to see a lot more and didn't, there's mm -hmm. something about the population uh, like that's healthier, They're obviously. excluding <laughs> all the people who were sick. <laughs> right. So, yeah, they, 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 yeah. I mean, it, yeah. 
It was hard to tell what they were using for their... I did actually download the appendix, which is over 30 pages, and they kind of went... But they didn't They didn't specify, like, the sites of the hospitals. Like, they didn't name the cities, and they didn't say where they got that original data and prediction from. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's hard to say, were they taking, you know, all comer 75 years old or the right. subsegment, you know, of people who are very healthy and 75 years old. It's difficult to tell. Yeah, I mean, just going back to the originally cited healthy physician study, the incidence of heart attacks was about 2%. So this is even less if you're talking about, uh, you know, 7 or 10 or 1,000 person years. That's less than 1% in general. So the real second part of the equation, as alluded to in the first article, is, well, maybe it doesn't prevent heart attacks, and maybe it does or doesn't increase the risk of bleeding, but what about all-cause mortality? Does it prevent colon cancer, maybe some of these other cancers that are out there. So the second part of that study uh, addresses all-cause mortality and tries to tease out those things. So Adam? Sure. Um, So the second part, this is a paper entitled Effect of Aspirin on All-Cause Mortality in the Healthy Elderly. And it's looking at with the exact same uh, raw data uh, that uh, Lauren described to you from the ASPRI trial. Um, And it's essentially just reconfiguring the endpoints. So the first endpoint was essentially how healthy are these patients after a few years. So the primary endpoint was essentially uh, disability-free survival. Um, There were also some secondary endpoints, essentially a composite endpoint of disability-free survival plus death. And I think kind of the heart of this paper comes into this uh, secondary endpoint, which is when they're examining all-cause mortality. the uh, population, as just a quickly recap, was um, uh, individuals who are 70 up uh, without any major health problems. And then um, half were given placebo and half were given aspirin. So it found that uh, towards the primary endpoint, there was essentially no difference. The uh, outcomes were essentially the same. It was found, however, that uh, patients who were being treated with aspirin did have increased mortality. And when the subgroup analysis was performed, it showed that the um, main reason for this was cancer deaths, so, which is kind of interesting and surprising and unexpected. But that's what the data showed. So um, one of the big questions is, was this significant? And it, um, it was shown to be statistically significant, although fairly subtly. So the all-cause uh, mortality, the uh, confidence in interval was 1.14 for the hazard ratio, and um, it did not cross 1. It was 1.01 to 1.29. Um, just another way to think about those numbers, um, calculated a quick fragility index, uh, which was 6. So one way to think about that is if 6 patients in one outcome group switch sides to the other, then this trial, w- uh, then this result would not have been considered significant, so it would take six of these patients. Um, In terms of the endpoint of cancer deaths rather than all-cause mortality, uh, the hazard ratio was 1.31 with aspirin group having worse outcomes, and that was also statistically significant with a confidence interval 1.10 to 1.56, and for that the fragility index was 24, so 24 patients would have to jump groups for that to be considered statistically non-significant. So while this paper doesn't give us any explanation of why this is occurring, it is a pretty profound and real difference. So um, 
It also looked at uh, other uh, causes of death, um, bleeding, cardiovascular disease, ischemic stroke, which uh, Loren discussed. Uh, those were not really significant. Okay. That's the big part of Yeah, I think there was one table there that actually looked at the cancer by site, mm -hmm. and probably most surprisingly, uh, colorectal cancer, which it sort of has almost been accepted as a, yeah, it really works for that. Mm -hmm. If you don't have heart disease, maybe you should take it just to prevent that. Mm -hmm. Actually, was higher in the aspirin-treated group, statistically so, with a good confidence interval doesn't cross one than in placebo, and the same also held up to a lesser extent for lung cancer, where the rest of them were really all over the map and not really clear. So, um, bottom line from this huge study. Um, well done, and again, the compliance rate was in the, about two thirds of the patients mm -hmm. were compliant. But when we looked at studies of warfarin and anticoagulation, it's about the same amount of people taking these other drugs uh, for good reasons um, as well. About a third of the population falls off in compliance over time, um, but it doesn't prevent heart disease and it may increase, doesn't really increase the risk of bleeding, but it may have an association, not a causation. Mm -hmm with a slight increased risk of cancer. That has yet to be explained why or how or anything mm -hmm. else. Um, so that was a surprise um, study. There were two more articles in today's New England Journal. I'm not going to go into them, but certainly people are interested. Read them. The third one was uh, another part of the same free study, and the fourth one was a different study that basically looked at whether <laughs> diabetics specifically given primary prophylaxis might benefit and the answer was sort of a couched maybe <laughs> for them. Depends how far along you are. So that was what I wanted to address with the aspirin is this uh, magic bullet that everybody should be on. That I think it's some people should be on it, the ones who are indicated for it. Unfortunately, aspirin is everywhere. It's in every household. And what we see is people are overdosing on it. And we sort of had a case last night. One of the thorniest kind uh, of discussions we tend to have is like, Who's at risk for dying? Who should be dialyzed? We've been through some of the extra issues on this before. I want to pull in two more recent studies about the risk of severe outcome and, the, and dialysis specifically. Uh, we'll start with uh, Tony's paper. Um, you can tell us about that. Sure, yeah. Um, so I had this paper. It was uh, a Clintox paper from 2017, I believe, and was uh, is titled Acute Salicylate Poisoning risk factors for severe outcome. And um, it's from a couple places in New York, but um, they essentially are looking for, uh, to profile what are risk factors that you that, that they picked um, prior to doing the study or prior to doing their analysis that would predict uh, people who would have a severe outcome. So um, they basically talk about, um, they do a quick introduction on salicylates. So um, this is obviously very common. Uh, if you work in toxicology, we see this all the time. Um, once upon a time in the 60s, they diagnosed, or they uh, developed the DOME nomogram, uh, but then when they tried to go validate it, uh, it didn't work out. So basically nobody uses the DOME nomogram anymore. So we still don't have a good way to predict who is going to get really sick and who's not. Um, and so they're essentially looking for um, factors that are associated with uh, clinically severe outcome. Other studies have shown age, CNS features, metabolic acidosis, and delayed diagnosis all um, are, are associated with poor outcomes. Um, 
And so what they ended up doing was they took a retrospective cohort, um, and this is a secondary analysis of a study that was already done on a bunch of different types of overdose. Um, they essentially, the patients were coming from two urban tertiary care hospitals. And while there wasn't a, um, a regional poison center that they were really affiliated with, there was a medical tox consult service bill. Um, the, uh, they ha all of the patients had acute drug overdoses uh, within, and were within 24 hours of their exposures. And um, they excluded people who had any alternative diagnosis, uh, any chronic presentation, uh, so these are all acute salicylate overdoses, uh, non-drug overdose, like a plant, uh, and uh, exposure uh, that was either dermal or inhalational, uh, which is not a major exposure uh, mode for salicylate anyway, uh, anaphylaxis, people less than 18, and uh, patients who had incomplete data, and people who were DNR. So most of the things that you, that, that most of these things were appropriately left out of the study. Um, and then what they essentially did was um, they had collected data about the overdoses. So demographic data was collected, um, an initial serum salicylate concentration, although no follow-up concentrations seem to have been collected, and they comment on that. Um, and then, you know, just sort of clinical features, what were their pHs, you know, was their GCS, like what was their mental status like? And um, they essentially were looking for people who developed a severe outcome. So they defined severe outcome as acidemia, uh, that being a pH less than 7.3 or a bicarb less than 16 milliequivalents per liter. Uh, anyone who got hemodialysis uh, or anyone who died. Um, so fairly, fairly, fairly good definition of severe. Um, and then they went through and did univariate and multivariate, multivariate analysis for a number of different things that they had picked up. So they started with close to 2,000 acute drug overdoses. And remember, this is data from a variety of different overdoses. And so after excluding um, everyone who didn't have a salicylate overdose, there were 50 uh, people left. So very few of the original uh, were left, and then two of those were less than 18, so they were excluded by the exclusion criteria. So they had a total of 48 patients total who met the inclusion criteria, uh, 21 of which were male, uh, average age was 32. Uh, the initial salicylate concentration on average was 28.1, so not drastically high. 10% uh, were classified as severe by their criteria. Uh, two died, two, uh, seven went under uh, hemodialysis, sorry, two underwent hemodialysis and seven met acidemia criteria. So, um, let's see. Uh, oh, the exact time, there were a good amount of people who didn't have the exact time of ingestion to presentation um, in their chart, so that is something to note. Um, after going through their initial analysis, um, they found a bunch of things, they talked about a bunch of things that essentially didn't correlate uh, after univariate analysis. So um, let's see, there, so things that did correlate were increasing age, uh, respiratory rate, lactate elevation, uh, coma, and uh, presence of co-ingestions. Uh, those were all associated with severe outcome in, in univariate analysis. Um, initial salicylate concentration had nothing to do with whether they uh, became um, severe or not. Um, and then interestingly, and I was kind of surprised by this, hyperthermia or hypoxemia, neither of those predicted 
any severe outcome. I just I was surprised by that because I would have thought as a mitochondrial poison, you know, the higher amount you mm -hmm. have, you would be hyperthermic. But that didn't correlate at all either, which mm -hmm. I thought was interesting. Um, the univariate analysis is actually shown probably better than I just said it in one of the tables here, and that is uh, if you guys have it pulled up, it's table. Um, Table two has all of the univariate analysis and the uh, p-values. So again, age, respiratory rate, uh, coma, co-ingestions, and that's pretty much it. Those are the only things in the univariate analysis. And then they did um, a multivariate log logistic regression uh, to look for things that were independently uh, risk factors for severe outcome. And so after looking at all those, there were actually only two things left over. Uh, that were statistically significant. And so age being one of them, uh, and respiratory rate being the other one. Uh, and those data are shown, I believe, in table three. Um, yeah, so there's the multivariate analysis. So age had an adjusted odds ratio of 1.13, um, and a 99, the confidence interval is 1.02 to 1.26, and then respiratory rate was 1.29. Uh, that was the odds ratio for that, and the uh, confidence interval is 1.03 to 1.63. Nothing else was statistically significant. Um, they talk a little bit about uh, lactate as a biomarker of salicylate poisoning, and they did a receiver operator curve for, uh, for lactate, uh, which is shown in figure one. Um, they said that based on their receiver operator curve, um, the optimal lactate cutoff was 2.25. Um, and that gave a 78% sensitivity and 67% specificity for severe outcome, while the uh, maximally specific cut point was 6.15, so pretty elevated lactate. Um, so um, essentially what they concluded was there's a number of univariate variables that, uh, that correlate with severe outcome based on their, uh, their criteria for severe outcome. And those are ones that I think most of us recognize as someone who's probably going to be severe. Um, the ones that, that had uh, multivariate uh, statistical significance are, again, people that you would think of as being at risk in the first place, so the elderly, um, and then people who are breathing heavily when you see them. Um, so that's not entirely surprising to me. Um, and, and really neither are the, the multivariate uh, ones either. It's like people who had a, like a high lactate elevation or people who had a coma or people who ingested uh, you know, other medications, probably in general like sedative hypnotics or something that's gonna cause them altered mental status and not be able to compensate for their acidosis. Um, and so this was interesting to see like just what things independently were risk factors uh, and really what things not independently in the univariate analysis for risk factors, but I didn't think that, that uh, the things that they that they brought up really were all that surprising to me. Uh, Zane, I don't know what you thought about the paper. Yeah, I mean, it sort of just reiterated what we already know, yeah. and it was a, you know, despite starting with close to 2,000 patients, there are really only 48 patient studies, so it's hard to say yeah. what predictives work, but I mean, if you're going to take away a take-home message from this paper is, you know, vital signs are vital, and they include the respiratory rate, and our respiratory rate of 22 is not normal, and you should sit up and take notice, and as they suggest, but to improve in their study, you need to get serial salicylate levels, and follow them and see where they're going, and lactate may or may not be important, but their levels are certainly not shockingly high yeah. uh, to get our attention. Um, and there may be other variables they discuss, like ketosis may contribute to false lactate elevations. That is also a 
often part and parcel of more severe um, solicitly poisonings. And then the other thing that I thought was interesting was the, the, uh, the measurement of a severe outcome. So I get like hemodialysis and death, but yeah. astemia less than 7.3 isn't, I mean, it seems like yeah. we see that pretty frequently. Right. Less than 7.3 is not no. terrible. I agree. Um, the other thing about that, if you look in the table, why is coma not considered a severe outcome? Yeah, you would yeah. think so, right? There it's were like two people in the most severe outcome <laughs> who had coma. Yeah. <laughs> From aspirin yeah. overdose? Seems yeah. like that would be very similar. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> at, at best, this needs to be kind of reproduced on a bigger scale, well, but I think the bigger. I just want to one other comment. You, it, you really shouldn't be doing logistic regression on uh, such a small sample yeah. size with so many independent variables that you're looking at. You're supposed to have 10 in each category, and there's no way to add that. Um, so, Hmm. I'm surprised at the the uh, lack of uh, data supporting kind of their conclusions. And the other thing I would say is that even though we think respiratory rate is helpful, we also know that respiratory rate is one of the most notoriously uh, inaccurately <laughs> uh, mis recorded, mischarted yeah. uh, pieces of the Bible. Yeah, that's a great point. When they were looking back through the charts, they were probably all charted incorrectly. I think mm -hmm. who knows. Yeah. So it's hard to and these were these weren't just poison center data, which would be yeah, even, more, even worse. Yeah, yeah. actually, the ER charts and sort of nurse obtained bioscience, but still prone to the same thing we see frequently, which is you may misjudge the respiratory rate by a few points and can make a big difference. Yeah. Um, so next up is another uh, recent study, also uh, from a toxicology group, trying to figure out who is sick and who may need hemodialysis. Um, Adrian, tell us about that one. Yeah, so this article uh, is titled The Association of Hemodialysis and Survival in Intubated Salicylate Poison Patients. It was published in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine in April, so, let's see, actually, yeah, just a couple months ago in 2017. Um, so, uh, just to like give us some background and intro. So, um, in response to like salicylate overdose, the body is naturally going to hyperventilate. This is ultimately you're decreasing your PCO2. This is ultimately going to increase your CRMPH. At the same time, you know your body is also going to increase the renal excretion of bicarbonate, and that decreases the CRMPH. Uh, in acidemic patients, um, salicylates easily enter the CNS um, when when you're acidotic. Uh, and expelling carbon dioxide is essential mechanism to alkalinize the blood and um, this becomes even more apparent when you start treating the patient uh, with sodium bicarb for urinary alkalinization. So obviously we should pay very close attention to these patients' mental status, respiratory status, as we already discussed, looking for fatigue. When are they going to get tired? Uh, that could signal decompensation um, created by the actual worsening of metabolic acidosis. At that point, some of these patients become too fatigued uh, and they actually have to be intubated and mechanically ventilated. Um, and managing the vent settings uh, for these patients can be extremely difficult. Um, it can be really difficult to provide, you know, high minute ventilation um, in order to actually get that adequate hyperventilation uh, and have an acid-base like equilibrium. Um, 
And like I said, dependence on this high minute ventilation is difficult to recreate artificially when you're ventilating a patient. Um, so when you're unable to expel that CO2 due to in, when you're intubated and you're not actually controlling your own, your own breaths and they're not hyperventilating you, you're going to have a decrease in the serum pH. Again, the kidneys are getting rid of bicarb uh, that further contributes to the drop in the pH. And um, in this acidic environment, as aspirin, as we discussed earlier, is in its non-ionized state, and this can easily cross into the brain, and that's what we are really worried about. And there's been, you know, um, reports of uh, peri-intubation cardiac arrest, and, and this has been kind of attributed to this like acute worsening in this acidosis and kind of salicylates in the brain. So, and then obviously hemodialysis is um, very effective at eliminating salicylates and correcting the acid-base imbalance, but you know, it needs to be considered early um, before these patients get too sick. So ultimately the purpose of this study, they wanted to describe the impact of hemodialysis on survival rates in uh, salicylate poison patients that were intubated. So this is a retrospective observational study at Illinois Poison Center. It was, uh, so cases from 2003 through 2014. Um, they were looking specifically intubated patients with a serum salicylate level greater than 50 milligrams per deciliter. So that was kind of their inclusion criteria. Uh, and that level could be breached at any time, like before or after they were intubated and mechanically ventilated. Um, and then they compared this serum concentration and to survival. And if, that, if they got subsequent concentrations, uh, which they all did, a peak measured salicylate was compared with the survival. So ultimately there were 56 cases that were identified overall between all patients that were dialyzed and not dialyzed. The survival rate was 73%, so 41 out of 56. There were 15 fatal cases. In 11 of the 15 fatal cases, uh, they did not receive hemodialysis. Um, all the patients who did receive hemodialysis, um, there was 31. Um, all of them were intubated prior to getting hemodialysis. Uh, they found that in patients who did not receive hemodialysis and had an aspirin level greater than 50, they had a 56% survival rate. Uh, compared, if these patients who did not get hemodialysis and they had a level over 80, all those patients were they had 0% survival in that group, and there was nine in that group. Wow. Mm -hmm. um, when they look at the patients that actually did get hemodialysis, an aspirin level greater than 50 um, had an 83% survival rate, so if we compare that to uh, not receiving dialysis, it was 56, so 50, that's a huge difference, right? Mm -hmm. And then you look at the patients who had uh, concentrations greater than 80 and got hemodialysis, and again, 83% of those patients survived. So that's much better than 0%. <laughs> 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 um, they, these uh, figures here kind of graphically describe kind of what I just said. Um, it's kind of difficult to kind of interpret when it's just in black and white. Um, but let's see next. So, there were um, nine cases in which they had initial aspirin level that was less than 50, and then it increased um, greater than 50 on repeat testing. Uh, there were five cases with that situation uh, where it was like lower than 50 and then greater than 50 on the second one, and did, uh, they did not get hemodialysis. Of those five cases, there was one person who died. 
Um, when you look at that person, their initial aspirin was 14.2 and their peak was 130. Mm. Um, and then there's four cases where the level was less than 50 and then crossed over to greater than 50 and also got hemodialysis. Um, and there was also one person that died in that group. In that group, the initial aspirin was 1.5 and it peaked at 123. Um, so the, all those um, concentrations that I just described and kind of um, you know people crossing the line of the 50 mark, uh, that's very consistent and well-documented phenomenon. You know, we've talked about it, about the erratic absorption um, and redistribution of aspirin in the body. And so this can be pretty alarming if you look at these cases. I mean, their, their initial concentrations went from what, 1.5 to 123, that's that's huge. So obviously, this should definitely reinforce the um, necessity of performing serial measurements um, compared to the last study there where they just looked at one, one, one time. Um, so let's see. Uh, in all the 56 cases, they did not find any of the patients that actually required intubation after they had uh, received hemodialysis. So with that in mind, they recommend that um, if you are intubating this patient, they should essentially universally should um, get hemodialysis. Um, let's see. They did find, they note that they found very alarmingly high rates of mortality if hemodialysis was not performed. Um, and these patients did not have an increase in mortality with increasing serum salicylate levels if they actually did receive hemodialysis. Uh, again, they reiterate that if the salicylate toxic patient requires an intubation, they immediately should um, get hemodialysis. Uh, limitations include, you know, retrospective nature. Um, they didn't exclude, like, uh, co-ingestion, so there's always the possibility that you know, someone has that it didn't hypnotic on board and that could influence their need for intubation. Um, and, that, and it could also just uh, interfere with the salicylate absorption and elimination kinetics. Uh, and then they didn't distinguish between like acute and chronic salicylate um, overdoses. So I thought this was a really interesting article and kind of gives us some more evidence to support, um, you know, going straight to dialysis if you're worried about their mental status and need for intubation. Yeah, no, again, a, a small single center study, also about the same amount of patients, about 50 patients. You would think that maybe we can get some of these groups together and get bigger numbers, but we, we haven't done that yet, despite aspirin being around for years and years and years. It just shows that not many people really get intubated. Yeah, but their, their fatality rate was probably the most interesting part. I mean, we treat a lot of aspirin cases, and I don't know what our overall mortality rate is, but I'm not sure of that many deaths. I usually write up death abstracts each year, and it's two or three every year. Um, nothing against you know them and how, how they proceeded, but they probably had a much more severe group of patients. But I mean, the one thing that, and the language that they didn't use and the argument that we often have in the middle of the night with nephrologists and the team treating the patients is who should be dialyzed. And you know, we're starting to say, think about it, call nephrology when our levels are 60 and 70, which this article supports, and the people on the other end will say, well, I'm looking at an up-to-date or some other reference book, and it's got to be above 100 before they die. So I think we can kind of point to this article and say, no, 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 people who have levels of 60 die, and actually, the, if you would, the, the LC 50% or LC 50, the lethal concentration with 50% of the patients 
across the mark, the dye is around 60 milligrams per deciliter, which is way below our traditional 100 milligrams, which is a number really pulled from thin air. Um, embedded in this article are two little vignette tin bits of which we're going to go into a little bit more detail with our subsequent papers, of one of which was a patient who had an undetectable salicylate level that increased up to 35 seven hours later, which is not that uh, dramatic, but he was medically cleared and he died when he came back with a level of 128. Mm. So s rising levels require serial levels until they're cleared. The other one is uh, a patient who went from less than 15, which is about the level of detection on some analyzers, to over 120. Um, so there are these cases of delayed salicylate toxicity that we all know, which is why the initial level in the other study doesn't correlate with anything. It's where where you end up more than where you start. Before you go to those, though, sure. just about this study, yeah. I, what I found uh, somewhat disappointing, it's a poison center study, mm. but there's no comment in there as to why they, there was no chemodialysis for those patients that were intubated. Yeah. I mean, if the poison center's involved, did they recommend it? And chemodialysis was not available, for instance? Was, was the patient too critical at that point? that they couldn't even initiate chemodialysis. So yeah. I think those things would have been pretty interesting. You would think that the poison center would have recommended hemodialysis, right? I mean, it's Sorry. almost- Well, there were four patients that they actually did uh, attempt to do hemodialysis, but they had um, cardiac arrest. Right, so, so those patients those are already patients? critical, and those are the ones you want to get started on much right. sooner, because the whole process of starting hemodialysis takes hours to four hours to get the nephrologist in, the access started, the, the uh, dialysis nurse available and all of that, so especially in the middle of the night when these patients often present. But a little more detail as to why they weren't able to get the dialysis might have been they actually didn't included those patients in the non-dialysis group too, even though they did get some dialysis, so that may kind of well, it was interesting that of the patients who got dialysis, who whatever the criteria were, their survival rate was in the 80 plus percent. Compared to zero percent right. in that group, yeah. But to go back to the prior study that we just yeah, talked about, yeah. too, the uh, outcome or uh, a, a criteria for uh, severe poisoning should be intubation. Just <laughs> right, <plus>. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Coma, intubation, all those things are bad and should prompt. <laughs> aggressive care and dialysis. I mean, in my mind, it should, although neither of these are prove that. Uh, to drill down on some of the other difficulties in treating uh, salicylate uh, poisoning, uh, I want to bring up two patients that deal with delayed salicylate. As they mentioned in this other case, there's this case who got a level and it wasn't that high, and he went home and he came back, it was sky high, and he died. So we're talking about uh, some case reports here for the back end of the session here. Uh, David, you got a couple that you're going to tell us about. Yeah, so this first case is titled Delayed Salicylate Toxicity at 35 Hours Without Early Manifestations Following a Single Salicylate Ingestion. Uh, so the brief introduction is that generally with therapeutic use, peak concentrations of salicylates occur in one to two hours after ingestion and four to six hours with enteric coated preparations. Uh, in the literature, <coughs> there's been delayed peak presentations up to 60 hours after ingestion. But uh, none of these reports have previously described patients who remained asymptomatic greater than 20 hours with uh, significant ingestion, which makes this case unique. 
So the case is a 14-year-old after a single ingestion of 120 tablets of aspirin, 81 milligrams, um, extended release, and six tablets of ciprofloxacin. And this was approximately two hours prior to arrival to the ER. She was asymptomatic on arrival. Uh, she had a respiratory rate of 18, borderline tachycardic at 100, but vitals otherwise were within normal limits. She received 50 grams of activated charcoal with sorbitol, and her first salicylate concentration was one milligram per deciliter. And just to give you a reference, the therapeutic range is 10 to 20 milligrams per deciliter. Her other self-harm labs were negative, uh, urine HCG was negative, and a drug screen was also negative. The salicylate concentration at six hours rose to 13 milligrams per deciliter, and she remained asymptomatic. This time, the electrolytes were back, and they were all within normal limits other than a bicarb of 19, uh, though her ion gap was normal range at 11. Um, the salicylate continued to slowly increase. It was 13 at 8 hours, 14 at 13 hours, 14 at 17 hours, and then 18 at 27 hours. Hmm. She remained asymptomatic until 35 hours after exposure, at which point she developed dizziness, tinnitus, and epigastric discomfort. At the time of her symptoms, her salicylate concentration was 46. Respiratory rate at that time was 20. Um, in labs at this time, bicarb still 19, though her anion gap was now 14. Um, she had a primary respiratory alkalosis with a pH of 7.5 and a PCO2 of 29. She was at this time given a second dose of activated charcoal and started on a continuous infusion of uh, bicarb. Um, and then she was also started on potassium, 40 mil equivalents over four hours. Uh, her renal function remained normal throughout her admission, and a flat upright abdominal x-ray showed no abnormality in the GI tract, which we'll talk about you know, why this is relevant in the discussion. Um, close observation during this period, uh, so minimal suspicion for re-ingestion as the cause of her rise in salicylates. There was no complications, and she was eventually discharged to a psychiatry, psych psychiatric facility. So the discussion for this case, um, the authors noted four things that should increase physician alertness for serial salicylate monitoring. One is the history of a large amount of aspirin ingested, which this patient had. Um, two is increasing her stable concentrations initially. So this patient had stable concentrations over a period of multiple hours. Uh, ingestion of extended release preparations was the third, or co-ingestions of substances that decrease gastric motility. Um, in terms of why the delayed aspirin um, absorption rates, there's multiple uh, thoughts of why this can happen. One is delayed absorption due to the enteric coating. One is just with large ingestions, you have a saturation of the absorption pathways. Um, and then the third is a salicylate-induced pylorospasm uh, pyloro in formation of uh, bezoars. So um, bezoars are aggregates of drug that form a soft mass with limited surface area exposed to gastric fluids. Um, formation of these have been associated with a variety of medications, though uh, salicylates are one of the most highly implicated. And these seem to occur most commonly in patients with anatomic abnormalities, um, hence the, the conversation about the um, abdominal imaging. Uh, drugs that alter GI function and patients who ingest large amounts of tablets. Though these have been reported in patients that are um, anatomically normal and without any other co-ingestions. So the summary statement from this uh, case report is that due to the unreliable absorption patterns of serial salicylates, um, monitoring is critical on patients with possible or known salicylate ingestions. Concentrations that are not decreasing every four to six hours are highly suggestive of either continued absorption or delayed excretion, necessitating, necessitating further investigation. 
So then our second case. We're gonna hold yeah. on right there. So yeah, so yeah, a brief case. This is about ten or more years old at this point, where basically a person looked good, or they said they took 120 tablets. And I think when people say that, we have to believe them. They came with a reasonably negligible level of one, and rose up <laughs> yeah. to a level of significant amount. So one may query, how often does that really happen? I wonder if you could do a poison center study and get that answer. I almost feel like one of those high big time journals where we have a scientist in the room to tell us about uh, that. So here we have Rob Hendrickson <laughs> to yes. interject on a study he did here. Well, what a good question, Zane. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah so, so we uh, wanted to look at that exact question, is how many times do you have a undetectable one? In fact, I think uh, the study you just talked about was at 1.7, and levels of detection or limit of detection in a lot of labs is 1.7 or 2 or 5 or 3. It's all kind of all over the place. So. Um, how often does it happen that you have a negative aspirin concentration? <clears throat> and they go on to have salicylate toxicity. So um, what we did, and we actually had had a case that was uh, just shy of four hours and had a negative, was under the limit of detection, and then went on to have toxicity after that, and we had published that previously. So we looked back at our poison center records for a 15-year period from 2002 to 2016, looked for all um, acetylsalicylic acid cases and then um, excluded those that, did, that never had a serum concentration above or equal to 30. Uh, so we were looking specifically at people who developed salicylate toxicity and then excluded people who didn't have a, a salicylate concentration um, within four hours of arrival and then the ones that had clearly uh, poorly documented time of ingestion or time of initial aspirin and eliminated chronic congestion. So essentially acute ingestions that had a negative um, I'm sorry, that had, uh, that developed salicylate toxicity. So it was 311, excuse me, 313 uh, total cases, uh, and of those who developed salicylate toxicity, 11, or about 3.5%, had an initially undetectable aspirin concentration. So um, happens more frequently than I think we thought it did. It was case report level, but I think 3.5% is higher than case report. <laughs> um, there was uh, the two groups, those that had an undetectable, we wanted to see if there was some characteristics or factors between the group that had undetectable initial salicylate and a detectable salicylate. Uh, really not much difference. Uh, not too surprisingly, there was a difference between the time of the initial as aspirin concentration. Those who had a um, negative or undetectable initial aspirin concentration tended to be uh, drawn much earlier, so more like one or two hours after the overdose, and the people with the detectable ones were a little later than that. Um, so um, there were a couple of interesting um, cases, and there have been a couple of cases that have been reported before that are similar to this, uh, but we had a couple of interesting ones uh, in this group of 11. <coughs> one had an undetectable aspirin concentration at 60 minutes, they repeated it at 225 minutes, it was again undetectable, um, and then uh, ended up uh, developing toxicity and I think it was about 35 hours after. Yeah. So <clears throat> pretty significantly delayed. Um, and uh, we also had, we had another case that was just under four hours after the overdose that um, had a negative salicylate concentration. So people have talked about getting a six-hour salicylate concentration in the past, but that's really, the reason for that was really because the first one might be low-ish and it may go up. Um, 
what this suggests is that I think um, we probably should be getting four hours salicylate concentrations. And, and that is actually not a change in the standard. I think every textbook says that. But I think one of the practices in emergency medicine that has happened is the person on arrival gets a blood concentration of acetaminophen and salicylate. And you know, as <clears throat> toxicologists, we deal with this all the time. Someone calls us and they say, they came in an hour and a half after overdose, their acetaminophen is X, do we have to repeat it? You know, the answer is always yes, essentially, unless it's zero. Uh, and with salicylates, it sounds to me, at least from this data, that the answer is always yes. You always have to repeat it at four hours if it's negative before that. I think that's really the only difference I would make. The only change I would make. Yeah, no, it was a you know good study. A couple a couple observations, kind of linking uh, the one case report that David just talked about in yours is is uh, one almost all these patients got activated charcoal, some of the multiple doses. There's a couple who didn't. One actually got gastric lavage as well, and despite that, <laughs> that might have blunted perhaps the initial absorption. One could theorize, but it's hard to say. Uh, the second observation is in contradiction to Tony's paper where age was a risk factor, it seems that youth is more of a risk factor here and that many of these are teenagers, I'm not gonna say all, but many of them are in their teens and 20s. So maybe a little different pattern of how they overdose and their intent and their, their ability to choke down 120 aspirin without giving up and again, showing up pretty sick. And how early they come into the emergency department right. too, right. they tend to not always, but tend to come in quicker because right. someone finds out or they text someone or their parents find out or something. Right. Um, so they may just arrive earlier and more likely have that initial one earlier than it would have been if it was someone in another age group. So, so Rob, just to clarify, so if at four hours it's negative, do you recommend a second one? I don't, um, but not based on this data. I think this data suggests that anything before four hours has to be interpreted with caution, and you should always get okay, a four so hours. If it's lot. positive at yeah. any time, then you've got to definitely repeat it. Yes. I think the caveat is also, you know, if they say they took 100 aspirin or even 50 aspirin, I'd probably err on the side of getting one more yeah. level, sure. you know, as opposed to I took some handfuls of some pills, I don't know what they are. Kind right. of scenario which changes the equation a lot. Yeah. And the, in the kind of the case that you just presented, it, the levels never declined really. Mm -hmm. but yeah. So they were always consistently at a level, uh, not a high level, but mm -hmm. one, I think it, we all look for that declining level that not once or twice before you say it's okay. The second problem, you know, related to bezoar formation is another case report I'm going to have Dave talk about where someone comes in and their aspirin level is up and we treat them and it gets better. Is, is that the end or is there more to come, an act to, as there are no second acts in life except maybe in toxicology, but uh, <laughs> tell us about this other article. Yeah, it, well, it's funny that you just mentioned the question of whether the, the levels ever declined and so this case talks exactly about that. So the title is Delayed Recrudescence to Toxic, toxic Salicylate Concentrations After Salicylate Overdose. So this was published in the American College of Toxicology in 2010. Um, and the brief introduction is that once serum salicylate concentrations return to the therapeutic range after treatment in overdose, uh, most management guidelines no longer advise monitoring the concentration. Um, salicylate ingestions are known to exhibit unusual absorption patterns. However, this uh, report is the first known that we're aware of which shows a return to toxic concentrations after apparent resolution of toxicity. So the case, this is a 31-year-old with a history of depression, PTSD, and prior suicide attempts. Discovered by neighbors with altered mental status and a suicide note, 
when EMS got to him, he was awake and stated that he took a bunch of meds to kill himself, but wouldn't tell them which meds he took. There was 36 new and old pill bottles uh, found next to him, so including Tylenol, Percocet, Hydroxyzine, Ibuprofen, Lorazepam, Magnesium Oxide, Morphine, Oxycodone, Paroxetine, Ranitidine, Salsalate, Senna, Temazepam, tram Tramadol, Venlafaxine, and Zolpidem. So imagine being in the ER provider that gets this list and has to like, figure out what to do with this patient. I'm sure their mind was boggled. Um, there was no evidence of other salicylate containing preparations. Uh, he was transported to the ER and vomited once en route. On arrival as vitals, he was hypertensive, 162 over 92. He had a pulse of 100, respiratory rate of 14, and oxygen saturation of 98, and a GCS of 14. He was sleepy but rousable, and his physical exam was otherwise unremarkable. Chem panel was all within normal limits, other than a bicarb of 33. His initial serum salicylate was 29.2. Tylenol and alcohol were undetectable. UDS was positive for benzos and cannabinoids. Initial pH of 7.34 with a PCO2 of 46. His EKG was uh, sinus rhythm, normal intervals, and no signs of ischemia. He was admitted to the ICU for polysubstance overdose. No charcoal was given due to concern for future airway um, um, deterioration. And on arrival in ICU, his heart rate increased to 112. Blood pressure was relatively the same. Respiratory rate was dropping, now 9. Um, oxygen saturation was still OK, but his level of consciousness declined, and his respiratory rate decreased, and he had a period of apnea for which he was intubated. At this time, he got bicarb, um, three amps put in a liter of D5W, running at 200 milliliters per hour, and he got two doses of charcoal after his airway was protected, 100 grams and then 50 grams, given through an NG tube. Uh, salicylate concentration peaked at 55, eight hours from presentation to the ER, and during this peak, his pH values ran between 7.37 and 7.45. Um, concentrations declined over the next hours. Therapy was stopped after 26 hours, um, and 38 hours from presentation, his salicylate reached a nadir of 5.6. But for whatever reason, his um, serial salicylate concentrations continued to be checked, and 49 hours after presentation, he was extubated. At this time, his salicylate had started to go up again. It was now 17.4 from his nadir of 5.6. Um, after extubation, he got, they got a little more history. He said, oh yeah, I took sal salicylates, hydroxyzine, and uh, benzodiazepines. Um, during this period, he didn't receive any salicylates, but his levels continued to slowly rise. He developed tinnitus 61 hours after presentation, at which point his level was 41.4. His room was searched. There was no evidence of any salicylate uh, administration from himself. Uh, IV bicarb was restarted again at 62 hours, and he got two more doses of charcoal. Concentrations peaked the second time at 61.6, and this was at 67 hours from presentation. His concentration slowly declined, and he was eventually transferred to a psychiatric facility. So the discussion for this one, um, if you haven't heard of salicylates, it's a salicylate ester of salicylic acid, an NSAID analog of aspirin that causes less GI bleeding and fewer platelet effects. It's minimally absorbed in the acidic pH of the stomach, uh, and much more rapidly liberated in the basic pH of the small intestine. So it acts somewhat similarly to the enteric-coated salicylates. Um, mean peak concentrations generally occur 1.5 hours in therapeutic dosing and are usually undetectable by six hours. Um, there's one previously published case of salicylate overdose when this was published. And it was described as a patient with significant presenting clinical symptoms of uh, salicylate exposure. But initial concentrations were much lower than expected. However, the peak concentrations are eventually reached 94 at eight hours. So um, going back to the guidelines, uh, um, usually mo recommend monitoring until patients' symptoms improve and their concentrations decline. For this patient, if we had followed standard guidelines at 
33 hours prior to onset of his symptoms. Um, he could have potentially been transferred to a psych facility and been cleared before his concentrations began to rise again, which would have been problematic. So the authors of this um, case report hi uh, hypothesized what was the reason for the, uh, this unusual absorption. One is that he took more meds. Mm -hmm. However, they felt this to be unlikely as he was intubated for uh, a large portion <laughs> of the time. It can be done. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and after ex extubation, he had a one-on-one -on -one sitter and the room was searched. Another thought was that there was a change in renal excretion due to his cessation of bicarb therapy. So assuming his salicylate was absorbed at a constant rate, higher rate of excretion during sodium bicarb therapy could be expected. That's the reason that we give bicarb. And that potentially when they stopped the bicarb, that um, decreased or changed the balance, leading to a, a rise in the concentrations again. Although they felt that this seemed unlikely as they were monitoring his urine pH during this time, which is an important determinant of uh, salicylate excretion. And it remained relatively unchanged prior to and during the second rise. And then the final thought was that decreased GI motility from co-ingested medications, anticholinergics or opioids, um, could have led to a bezoar formation, which uh, then began to be absorbed once gut motility returned. It was noted that like around the same time as his concentrations natured and then started rising again, he started to have bowel movements. Um, the authors felt this to be the most likely explanation and posed the question whether this occurs more frequently than recognized in salicylate overdoses, and that maybe guidelines are currently missing um, this event happening. So these authors actually changed their protocol to include recommending obtaining a concentration at 6 and 12 hours after stopping bicarb therapy. Interesting. Right. Yeah, I mean, both of those are scary that we miss the ones that are low or negligible to begin with and then rise, and then we may miss some that have a, a level that's higher on the second peak than the first level, which this case is a rare example of, but it's probably happening, and we don't know how often because we never really looked for that second group. but. I think the notion that perhaps one or two more levels after you think you're all done is probably the safest tactic and not clearing these people to go to site where they're going to come back like they did in the other case example, uh, a series uh, with high levels and dying. Mm -hmm. So this is all the tricky ways that salicylate can fool us and harm us and uh, cause problems. So these are the del delayed releases. What about aspirin powder? Mm -hmm. um, I was I was unfamiliar with Moody powder, but apparently, yeah. But apparently, this is a big thing in certain parts of the country. So, telling us about powdered salicylate, uh, we have Stephanie. All right. So, this is a paper out of um, the Virginia Poison Center that was published in 2016 in Clinical Toxicology, entitled "Absorption of Salicylate Powders Versus Tablets Following Overdose: A Poison Center Observational Study." So before we get into the details of this particular paper, I just want to go over a few things about aspirin absorption. Um, so in therapeutic doses, aspirin is rapidly absorbed in, um, in the gastric mucosa by passive diffusion. Um, but in order for this absorption to occur, um, the drug must be dissolved into aqueous solution. Um, and so it's not surprising then that liquid forms of um, aspirin absorb more readily at therapeutic doses than um, your typical tablet form. For example, as we discussed previously, your aspirin typically will peak in concentration around one to two hours um, or four to six hours for enteric coated tablets and for what we kind of call effervescent mm -hmm. um, solutions that can take only 15 minutes to reach peak concentration. Um, but what we do know is that in overdose 
uh, with tablet formulations, we can have this delayed or prolonged absorption phase um, due to the formation of concretions, delayed gastric emptying due to pyloraspasm, or um, ingestion of these sustained release or enteric coated tablets. Um, and in fact, these may peak up to 35 hours after ingestion. Um, but the question we have is, is what happens when these patients are taking these powdered forms, which are typically dissolved in water or juice, um, and then consumed as a liquid solution? Um, these are particularly popular in the southern United States. Um, and the reason that we really care about this is that um, depending on the kind of absorption of liquid forms of aspirin has a few management implications, including an increased risk of early CNS toxicity and decreasing efficacy of ga uh, gastrointestinal decontamination. Um, so what we want to know is really what is the peak, the timing of peak serum salicylate concentrations following um, ingestion of powder versus tablet forms. So this study is a um, retrospective chart review of uh, Toxicol electronic database, um, and they were looking for a single substance acute or acute on chronic ingestions of aspirin. Um, either in a powder formulation or a uh, tablet formation uh, formulation as a comparator. Um, some of the inclusion criteria were that patients need to be greater than 12 years of age, um, they needed treatment within a health healthcare facility about nine, within nine hours of ingestion, and at least two detectable serum salicylate concentrations. Um, and the primary endpoints they were looking for here are the time and magnitude of the highest measured serum salicylate concentration, um, in tablet versus powder formulation, and then their secondary endpoint is comparing the elimination of salicylate uh, decline uh, between the two different groups. Um, notably, they found 16 of 25 cases for powder ingestion, 22 of 49 tablet cases that met this inclusion criteria, um, but of these, only 11 powder cases and 10 tablet cases actually had the time documented between the timing of ingestion and the first serum salicylate concentration. Um, and one thing of note is that the patients who ingested the powders were older. Their median age is about 41 years compared to those who ingested tablets for um, 23 years um, for the median. Um, and acute ingestions accounted for about 86% and 56% of tablet and powder products, respectively, um, with the remaining being acute on chronic ingestions. Um, and then the uh, dosage amount was unknown in the majority of cases um, for the tablet group, about 59% versus 36 in the uh, powdered group. Um, and so what they found was that the uh, median initial serum concentration for the powder cases was um, higher than the tablet ca uh, cases, so about 34 milligrams per deciliter versus 22. Um, however, the median highest salicylate concentration was not statistically significant. Um, with the powder being 36 and tablet being uh, 32. Um, and when we look at the timing of the, that highest concentration, um, for the powder cases, uh, we found a median of about 3.5 hours versus the tablet <coughs> cases who had a median of 5.8 hours. Um, however, given that this is a retrospective study, this is based on Poison Control Center uh, data, we don't have enough data to really accurately compare all patients in each group in order to come with a pharmacokinetic profile um, to compare these two groups. Um, and then finally, just of note, the final document is serum concentration. All cases either had to be, was either clinically significantly reduced compared to the highest concentration or they were deemed to be stable from that point. Um, 
And finally, um, approximately twice as many patients who ingested tablets were treated with at least one dose of um, activated charcoal. Um, and only one patient underwent hemodialysis, uh, and that was a patient who ingested a powder product who had a peak salicylate concentration of 95. Um, and, what, and ultimately what they saw is with powder ingestions between the first and second um, salicylate concentrations, there was a consistent decrease, um, with the exception of one patient whose initial serum salicylate concentration was obtained 90 minutes after her ingestion. Whereas with the tablet, tablet formulations, it varied somewhat, but most actually showed an increase between their initial and uh, at least second um, level. Um, and so the, so the question then is, or the, really the big take home point would be, um, treatments to decon decontaminate the GI tract, like activated charcoal may be helpful, as we know, for um, tablet ingestions, but for Patients who are ingesting powder formulations, if we're giving this about two to three hours after ingestion, it's probably not going to be very helpful. Um, and so that has some clear clinical implications and also thinking about how we're going to be drying serial concentrations of salicylates in patients who've um, ingested the powdered form. Yeah, so I mean, interesting. We don't see a lot of this, but apparently, like say in the South, there is more of this powder. Interestingly, some of these powders have as much as 845 milligrams of aspirin per use, which is like double, triple size of what we usually expect. Um, I think the sort of the good news message, if there is one in better than all of this, is usually the first level if it's not got, gotten right really early away, it's usually the peak level and all but one case here for the powder and then they all declined with the therapy um, and a lot of them got charcoal as well. So unlike the sneaky delayed onset, this is not going to be one of those sneaky delayed onset, at least from a limited case series of 16 cases at a one poison center, that's certainly not the giant amount of total number of cases that are out there. but. Something to take into consideration if uh, people are using powdered salicylate, they may get in less trouble or they certainly will declare themselves earlier. Clearly, one of them needed to be dialyzed. They were up there in that, that range in the 90s. I just want to make a quick comment just because this is a favorite of the state where I'm originally from in Virginia and is mm -hmm. very commonly seen in um, adults, I think, with therapeutic misadventure more than intentional overdose. I think there's a couple things that contribute to the population mm -hmm. it presents in. One being a powder form. It's hard to chug a whole bunch of powder. It's a lot easier to take pills. Um, the powders that come, they're flavored. They're like orange, mixed berry. They almost all of them have acetaminophen in them as well. But the smallest dose of um, salicylate per packet, it's usually in these little packets, mm -hmm. almost like those like powders that you can put in water, crystal light and stuff like that. They'll minimum is 500 milligrams. And we'll have patients who just say, oh, I just take my headache reliever. And they take like eight packets in a day. And it's a lot. They're just like, oh, I'll just drink in my headache juice. And that's what they'll come in and say. And this was something mm -hmm. we saw very frequently in Virginia. And it was usually an older population with kind of a chronic over the course of uh, two days of them having like a flu-like illness and then present with very profound salicylate toxicity because it's just so easy to keep drinking a juice that makes your headache go away. Mm -hmm. It's like CBD oil. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's our yeah. All right. Well, one of the other sort of things we always worry about, it doesn't occur very often, but can be quite serious, is topical. Salicylate doesn't come up very often, but there's plenty of liniments. 
that we can use, and there certainly is one very high-profile death of an Olympic hopeful several years ago who uh, died as a result of that. But this is a one case report from literature demonstrating how uh, difficult these cases can be to manage. So, Claire, tell us about that one. All right, so this is a case report out of the Victoria Poison Center in Australia. This is titled, Modern Intermittent Hemodialysis is an Effective Method of Removing Salicylate in Chronic Topical Salicylate Toxicity um, by Chan's colleagues. So this was written in the setting of, um, we're really unsure what the potential use of hemodialysis and its efficacy would be um, to remove salicylate, especially in the context of chronic toxicity. And so this was a 40 or 54 year old male presented with worsening dyspnea over a week. Um, was initially presumed to have an acute um, asthma exacerbation. However, on for talking further with him, it was revealed that he had been um, using Dencobrub Extra Strength Heat Gel in the past week for aches and pains, and had been applying one tube of 100 grams every day for the past seven days. Each tube contains 26% or 26 grams of methyl salicylate. Um, so to do some quick calculations, um, for his weight of 100 kilograms, that would have been 260 milligrams per keg per day of methyl salicylate, or if you convert it to aspirin, that's about 308 milligrams per keg per day of aspirin. He also presented with nausea and vertigo, um, but denied tinnitus. On exam, he was afebrile, blood pressure of 144 over 72, he had a respiratory rate of 33, heart rate of 95, and an oxygen saturation of 98% on room air. Um, exam was significant for um, erythema all over his chest where he had been applying um, this gel. He had an ABG that showed a pH of 7.45, a bicarb of 10, PCO2 of 14, um, with a base excess of 14 and an anion gap of 30. Um, his creatinine was slightly raised at 122 micromoles per liter. His initial blood salicylate concentration was 5.7 millimoles per liter, and for reference the therapeutic range was between 0.2 to 0.7. Um, millimoles per liter. Um, based on this, he was diagnosed um, with having chronic salicylate toxicity. Um, the initial treatment that was provided was urinary alkal alkalinization. He got a 100 uh, millimole bolus of IV sodium bicarb. Um, that was then followed by another 100 millimoles over four hours to keep his um, urinary pH greater than 7.5. However, after both of those um, doses, he continued to have an elevated um, salicylate concentration it appears to be somewhere in the upper fours based on the graph provided. Um, and so it was felt that he needed um, further treatment, was transferred to a tertiary uh, care hospital, um, and was started on five hours of intermittent hemodialysis. Um, they did take uh, solicit concentrations from the afferent and efferent limbs mm. of the dialysis machine, um, both at the beginning and towards the end of, um, of dialysis, of this five-hour period. Um, and based on that, calculated both extraction ratios as well as um, clearance um, for that. Um, based on um, their graph, uh, they noted that the half-life um, initially, pre-dialysis, was 12.6 hours, but then during dialysis period dropped to two hours, so uh, much, much less. Um, and then in terms of um, extraction ratios, they noted at the beginning um, of when they started dialysis, they had an extraction ratio of 0.44, with a clearance of 78.5 milliliters per minute, um, dropped um, towards the end of dialysis to an extraction ratio of 0.36 with a clearance of 64.3 um, milliliters per minute. Um, with dialysis, they noted that his tachypnea resolved um, and his salicylate concentrations um, nearly fell to within therapeutic range. 
um, post-dialysis, um, it actually took another 50 hours, or the next half-life was 50 hours, um, until it, it really dropped into the therapeutic range. Um, he recovered and was actually discharged home um, on, on day three um, of his present, after of his presentation. Um, so notably, of course, um, salicylate poisoning is probably more often seen in the acute setting, but this is more of a chronic exposure. We know that um, the, this medication couples oxidative phosphorylation, it increases cellular metabolism, and also directly stimulates the respiration center, among other things. Um, chronic uh, toxicity is more likely to present um, insidiously. Confusion, hallucinations, delirium um, can often go unrecognized, especially in elderly patients. In terms of laboratory findings, um, you might see in respiratory alkalosis, a high anion gap, metabolic acidosis, hyperkalemia, and some coagulation abnormalities. Um, in this case, of course, we had more of a chronic um, exposure, um, looking at some of the um, absorption levels, salicylate absorption after 30 minutes um, of contact time, so um, this um, you know, gel form is thought to be about 2%, um, but it's thought to be that 12 to 20% of the topical dose of methyl salicylate can be absorbed for 10 hours. So this is more, um, there seems to be a higher absorption with these kind of chronic exposure settings than just an acute one-time exposure. Um, typically treatment um, of salicylate toxicity is going to include maintaining eulemic status, potentially GI decontamination with activated charcoal, um, urinary alkalinization with sodium bicarb, as in this case, and then potentially um, hemodialysis, as in, as in this case. Um, notably, salicylic, a salicylic acid is a weak acid. Um, it's going to be ionized in an alkaline environment. Um, it's also a, a low molecular weight protein, and so its volume dis uh, distribution um, is only 0.2 liters per cake, but it's highly protein bound at therapeutic con uh, concentrations. But in cases like this, where we have an overdose, um, the extent of protein binding is going to decrease considerably, and so that makes it a much better candidate um, for extracorporeal removal, potentially with um, hemodialysis. Typically, hemo uh, indications for dialysis are going to include altered mental status, new hypoxemia, salicylate concentration of greater than 7.2 millimoles per liter in cases of acute poisoning, or um, potentially lower concentrations in cases of chronic poisoning or in patients with renal impairment. So although this patient didn't meet those indications, as the authors noted, um, they did feel that because he was um, symptomatic despite urinary um, alkalinization that they wanted to go ahead with hemodialysis and felt that was indicated for him. Um, I think overall um, this case suggests that um, hemodialysis machines may have a role um, in removing salicylates um, in, in the treatment of chronic salicylate um, uh, toxicity. Yeah, that was interesting for a couple points. One, um, you can in fact get quite sick by putting topical salicylate, methyl salicylate, all over you, which is in lots of several of these ointments. Um, we know of at least one fatality that occurred. Um, you know, the second point is you, you can be high enough to dialyze, um, you know, just to convert, because this is a kind of a system international unit, so is 5.7 millimoles per liter equals about 78.7 milligrams deciliter and the levels that we're talking about when he, when he presented. So he was up there by the other article we presented. He's got like greater than a 50% chance of, of dying just walking in the door, uh, although he is chronic and sub-appropriate dialysis. And then the last point was that they actually calculated, to their credit, the extraction ratio early on and later on 
during dialysis, uh, just to review the extraction ratio, is the measurement of the concentration on the inflow arm of dialysis and then the outflow, subtract the outflow arm, so how much gets pulled out by the machine divided by the amount that starts out on the inflow arm. So it's the arterial minus venous over the arterial. The extraction ratio early on was 0.44, about 44%. Later on, about 0.36, or about a third. So nothing's going to be perfect, of course. This is why we dialyze people for four hours or six hours, because you need to go through the machine several times to get enough of it out. But it's pretty good. 44% is pretty good early on. So I thought that was a, an interesting article. Just a couple other points about that, though. In mm -hmm. terms of the presentation, you mm -hmm. noticed that he was uh, referred to the respiratory team yeah. uh, for his symptoms of dyspnea, and that's often the case with chronic uh, salicylism is that it goes unrecognized, mm -hmm. and that's uh, sometimes the reason they're deaths, because it's not recognized until it's too late. Um, but if you look at the blood gas for this presentation, mm -hmm. it's pretty severe. It's a mixed metabolic acidosis and uh, respiratory alkalosis, but the, the noteworthy thing is his PCO2 is 14. That's just about the limit that you can reach with your hyperventilation and trying to blow off the CO2. His respiratory rate's 33, so that, he was near respiratory failure at that point. Uh, just a, a presentation, although he may not have appeared clinically to be that sick. So, in terms of the the other thing to take away with chronic solicitism is that you can have much more severe symptoms at a relatively comparatively lower level than the acute solicitor. That tends to happen in older people that kind of present with various degrees of altered mental status, and we often hear about these cases after they've already been through a CT scanner and lots of other things for workup. It, interestingly, to go back to some of the other risk factors, the lactate was normal in this guy, and he didn't have any tinnitus, so some of the other things we might get yeah. out of history and actually collapse yeah, that didn't help. Altered mental status can be confusing as well, and these people, although we don't see as much chronic solicitism as we did many decades right. ago, a lot of these people were confused for meningitis because they would be yeah. altered and they would have a slightly elevated temperature and you, you know, they, they'd have a slight acidosis, you know, they have an acidosis and then people would do a tap and they would have low glucose in mm -hmm. their CSF mm -hmm. and so they'd be treated with antibiotics and then um, you know, either they'd die or they would <laughs> survive because you weren't giving them any more salicylates uh, and then, you know, uh, they would never have, their, all their cultures would be negative. And, so there was, there was a couple of cases, a couple of case series of that many, many years ago. We don't see it very often, so I wouldn't expect it to be common, but um, it kind of fits fairly well if you're not taking much this week. You don't see a lot of people taking, you know, for all the reasons that you, you mentioned at the beginning of this journal club, you don't see many people taking a lot of aspirin anymore. It used to be used a lot more commonly for no. rheumatoid arthritis. Yeah, arthritis and headaches and all these chronic painful conditions. And, um, so I think we saw a lot more chronic solicitism back then. Yeah. Just don't see it very often. Yeah, I mean, if you're just taking a baby aspirin a day, you're not going to get yeah. in trouble. It's going to take a lot. Right, right, right. You're going to be taking some chronic inflammatory disease. Or well, all the things we thought we could possibly rely on, if nothing else, it's this old serum salicylate concentration itself, but not so. Uh, another case report 
uh, by Forrest here uh, will dissuade us of that notion. <laughs> yeah, really uh, interesting case support here, um, demonstrating potential shortfalls in some of our common lab tests in salicylate toxicity, and really demonstrating the importance of a good uh, clinical exam to guide the diagnosis. Um, first is titled Falsely Elevated Salicylate Concentration in a Patient with Hypertriglyceridemia. Uh, this is published in 2017 in uh, Toxicology Communications. Uh, the case is a 26-year-old man who presented to the emergency department with um, diffuse abdominal pain after a night of heavy drinking um, and an elevated uh, lipase at 226. So the presumptive diagnosis was uh, alcoholic pancreatitis. Um, and uh, he was otherwise pretty well appearing. He denied any symptoms of uh, salicylate toxicity, no tinnitus, headache, confusion, shortness of breath. Um, and his vital signs were pretty normal with a blood pressure of 140 over 80, heart rate of 110, a little bit fast, uh, respiratory rate of 12, and temperature at 99.8. It sounds like he was lying comfortably on the stretcher, conversational and alert. Um, his uh, initial labs were notable for a sodium of 122, and then potassium of 3.8, chloride of 90, bicarb of 21, and a BUN of 10, creatinine of 0.7, and a glucose of 103 with notably an anion gap of 11. Um, and his ABG was also pretty normal with a pH of 7.39 and a PCO2 of 36.6, PO2 of 120. Um, and they repeated this the serum triglycerides and it had jumped to 7,650. Um, so he's clearly got uh, lipemia. Um, kind of the, the question was, was there anything else potentially going on. It sounds like the team had some concern for self-harm behaviors, so they uh, drew uh, um, ethanol and salicylate concentrations to kind of work that up. Um, and lo and behold, the salicylate concentration came back at greater than 100 milligrams per deciliter. It topped <laughs> out the machine. Uh, and uh, so there was some initial concern for the possibility that this gentleman may have also taken a bunch of aspirin um, and had an occult overdose that he wasn't telling anyone about. Um, so the, the team kind of got the, the ball rolling in terms of a formal toxicology consult, a formal nephrology consult. Um, they started IV bicarb and multi-dose activated charcoal um, and were considering hemodialysis. So the, the, the train was leaving the station, um, <laughs> but they went back to re-examine the patient's health. He was still clinically quite well, uh, denying any use of salicylate-containing products um, and without any real changes in his vital signs. Um, so the, the kind of uh, mismatch between the lab picture and the clinical picture uh, prompted these uh, physicians to dig a little bit deeper into what might be going on. Um, and they contacted their lab to learn more about how the salicylate concentration was measured. Um, it turns out there's several different ways to measure salicylate concentration, but the most commonly used is called the Trinder method, and it combines ferric ions um, with the patient's serum, and it, those ions combine with the salicylate in the serum, and that causes a, a purple color change. And so then the result is then measured um, in a, with a color, colorimetric method, um, and based on the color of the serum, they make it a uh, readout of what the salicylate concentration is presumed to be. Um, where this can go wrong in uh, lipemia is that the uh, lipoproteins can actually absorb certain wavelengths of light. So in patients who have a lot of lipids in their blood, it can cause a falsely elevated 
uh, salicylate concentration that's actually been reported in a number of different case reports other than this one. And finally, the authors kind of bring up the interesting point at the very end that, you know, although it's you know, a little bit less frequent for us to see patients coming in with a, a lipids in the 7,000s, um, there's been an increasing move towards using emulsified lipids in mini poisoning patients. And we've got to be aware that this could uh, really confound our laboratory testing. So keep that in mind if you're ever uh, looking at a salicylate concentration that's been drawn on someone after they've gotten intralipid. Uh, it may well be elevated even though there's no salicylate in the patient's blood. Yeah, something I thought of doing after reading this is like maybe we just get some random salicylate concentrations after we start intralipid on some of these ill people that we know otherwise has not taken aspirin. Um, there's, a, there's a fix to this because we had a similar case not that much longer after this that we also recently reported. There's a uh, chemical called LipoClear that if you add it to the blood in the tube, it precipitates out the lipids and you can just use the supernatant to determine the uh, salicylate concentration. So if you run into this problem, that's the first thing you should do is call the lab at and ask some, add some LipoClear to, the, to, to another blood sample and see what the level turns out to be. So finally... Does our lab use a colorimetric method? Uh, I believe they do. I haven't checked if uh, that can happen. Um, the last thing is the anion gap. One thing we kind of a mud pile or mud piles about or teach everybody who's ever come through this rotation is aspirin's like one of the big culprits. So it may be a surprise that sometimes that doesn't happen. So finishing up here for yeah. this last case. Bringing it home, this case report was published in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine in 2013. It's titled Negative Anion Gap Metabolic Acidosis in a Salicylate Overdose, a Zebra. <laughs> Uh, this is a case of a 30-year-old man who presented to the emergency department after alcohol ingestion and a possible overdose of his prescription Keppra. Uh, he was sweating profusely, tachycardic, tachypnic, with dry mucous membranes and confusion and aggression. Uh, actually required Ativan and Haldol early on in his course um, for his behavior. Uh, his initial workup um, was notable for a sodium of 146, chloride of 118, bicarb of 21, BUNF12, creatinine of 1, an anion gap of 7, um, and uh, whites at 14,000, hemoglobin of 15.8, platelets at 205,000, and an INR of 0.5. Uh, his VBG showed a pH of 7.4, um, and the tox screen was positive for a serum salicylate of 45.8. Um, as well as ethanol, uh, ethanol, cannabinoids, and Keppra. Um, so with this presentation, um, given the elevated salicylate level, the treating team um, started immediate treatment with activated charcoal, half-normal saline with bicarb, um, and kind of trended his BMP and salicylate levels throughout the course of his hospitalization. And throughout the course of his hospitalization, uh, they noted that his anion gap never increased um, that his salicylate levels uh, did kind of increase before decreasing again, um, and that they actually noticed the same trend in his chloride levels, that they, they increased and then decreased again following the trend in the salicylate levels. Um, when they dug into this a little bit deeper, they recognized that uh, most of the, um, the machines that are used to read the basic metabolic panel use ion-specific electrodes to uh, essentially calculate the concentration 
of each of these different ions in the, the serum sample. Um, and that near the end of the uh, equipment life or the operational life of the chloride electrode, it can start to mistake the salicylate ion um, for chloride. So basically what, you know, what happened is that as, uh, as this patient's course progressed, he did have increasing salicylate levels, but that was interpreted as increasing chloride levels as well. Um, so there was never really a chance for that anion gap to open up, keeping in mind that the anion gap is essentially measuring uh, anions in the blood that aren't chloride or bicarb. So if all of those anions are red as chloride, you're never gonna see a rise in the gap. Um, fortunately, these providers had access to salicylate levels, uh, as I, I imagine most of us here in the US do. And so they were able to pick up on the um, the elevated salicylate levels and they treated him appropriately. But they do point out that in more low resource settings, uh, if this diagnosis is ever entertained without access to a salicylate level, uh, it should still be considered even um, in the absence of an anion gap as well. All right, yeah, so the take home message is uh, change your chloride electrode every 5,000 miles. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're gonna wrap it up today as uh, we've spent a long time, but there's a lot of lessons embedded in here about who should be on salicylate and how we should manage it, and it's a tricky overdose, acutely, chronically, topically, powderedly, every other <laughs> way uh, to manage, but our, uh, our awareness hopefully is heightened by all this. So, until next time, Zane Harowitz and the Oregon Poison Center crew, we'll speak to you then, see you then. <laughs>